0: Welcome to Episode 242 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, we're going to have an interview with uh, uh, Michael Tiffany, who's the co-founder and president at White Ops. Uh, I, I loved his um, bio. I went to look at his bio on uh, the White Ops uh, page, and it begins... Michael Tiffany is the least talented person at White Ops. Uh, I, I have to say that's, that's great. You go on to say you, you uh, hope to hire the kind of people who uh, are you. Uh, and uh, uh, so we're going to be talking to him about a, a very complex and sophisticated uh, ad tech fraud case and a complex and sophisticated takedown. So welcome, Michael. Oh, it's ha- I'm happy to be here. Okay, uh, and uh, for our news roundup, uh, we're got, we've got Maury Shank. Maury Shanky is just back from Israel, where he was commenting on the new uh, Israeli cyber law. Uh, uh.
1: Uh, it was a very interesting conference, and the most fun part of it was there was a large group of people from the Israeli government and private sector who seemed to know about and be fans of the Stepto Cyber Law podcast. So sure. I felt like a, a bit of a celebrity. <laughs> a particular shout out to the guy at the. Israeli Ministry of Justice. If he knows who he is, who claims to have introduced everybody to to our program.
0: That's all. I. This is great. Uh, well, it uh, uh, there's a uh, law of um, uh, cyberspace that uh, because it's the internet, everybody's famous for 15 people. I uh, uh, you. You apparently met four or five of the 15 that you're famous for.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. And Dr. Megan Reese, uh, who is with the R Street Institute, Lawfare, the National Security Institute. Uh, Megan, welcome.
2: Thank you, as always.
0: And uh, David Chris, uh, co-founder of Culper Partners, former assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department and the only head of NSD who didn't work for Bob Mueller at one point or another. Is that right?
3: Actually, that's wrong. When he was the head of the criminal division in 1992 at the end of the Bush administration, I was an attorney in the criminal division. So I did, in fact, work for him, albeit at quite a distance.
0: All right. Bob Mueller, the, uh, Kevin Bacon of the National Security <laughs> World. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of today's program. And I never worked for Bob Mueller either. Uh, why don't we jump right into the uh, uh, stories? Uh, uh, David, uh, there was uh, – Apple was in the uh, Supreme Court uh, in uh, – a standing case, I guess it's fair to uh, call it, uh, over whether uh, to keep the uh, the famous Illinois Brick case uh, uh, in effect. Uh, uh, can you give us a little bit more detail on what uh, the Supreme Court was arguing about and why Apple cared?
3: Yes, I can, subject to the caveats that I am not an antitrust expert and I do have tech companies as clients, so people should take it with a grain of salt. But um, this is a case involving the Apple App Store and app developers who put apps in that store and consumers Uh, and as you know Apple sort of runs a little bit of a walled garden it's a closed system and they get 30% of the price you pay for an app when you download it Um, and so as you say this is a Supreme Court standing case Um, app developers had tried to sue Apple um, claiming that they were monopolizing the market for apps on iPhones Uh, they had made made no real progress, but then they became and added to their claims that they were app purchasers. So Apple's relying on the Illinois Brick versus Illinois case from the Supreme Court in 1977, saying that only a direct purchaser, not others involved in the chain of production, can sue for antitrust violations. Apple is saying that the purchasers bought from the developers, the app developers, albeit through the app store, and the purchasers are saying they bought it from Apple. Um, and so there's just really a fundamental question here of who is buying what from whom. Um, from reports of the argument, I didn't attend, it seemed as if the justices, who can often be technology challenged, um, had a feeling from their own apparent uses of iPhones uh, of some sympathy for the idea that this was a purchase from Apple, since they sort of associated with Apple's App Store on their Apple iPhones. But reading the tea leaves at these kinds of arguments can be very difficult, and we'll see what happens when they go back and confer with each other and their clerks and actually have to write the thing uh, you know, to fit within existing antitrust law.
0: Yeah, I think this probably. I mean, the I, I think I was clerking the year that uh, they decided uh, the uh, Illinois Brick case, and it.
3: You're dating yourself.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, don't believe me. Yeah, it, uh, I, I, I'm getting the benefit of dating myself. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, so yeah, the, uh, the 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 case was sort of an Illinois attorney general saying, um, Illinois brick is charging too much for bricks and we don't buy the bricks, but we uh, uh, build stuff and uh, we buy bricks from the guys who buy the bricks. And so we should be able to sue if there is a monopolization of brick prices uh, uh, as well. And it was obviously kind of double dipping. Um, Here, you've got a situation where everybody's running platforms. The platforms themselves are a mechanism for monopolization and for controlling both the buyers and the sellers. And I, I'm guessing that this is a much more complicated uh, uh, antitrust standing problem than Illinois, Brick, and likely to get a much more nuanced decision out of the court. Yeah. All right. Um, we knew this was coming. Megan, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Trump administration has finally woken up to the idea that maybe there's a uh, some leverage in saying – we're not going to let everybody from China into the country, including people who look like they're, they're going to steal secrets uh, or uh, uh, build weapons when they go home.
2: probably a good idea. That does
0: seem like a good idea. Reasonable. Here's my prediction.
2: Yes. We will have the most
0: self-righteous, self-interested uh, lobbying we have ever seen on this issue from the universities.
2: Well, the universities get the bulk of their money from foreign students who don't get any sub- subsidization. Um, and,
0: I- and they they have no shame when they lobby. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, well, if your university is going to take massive pay cuts because the U.S. government says, hey, we don't want the Chinese students to be stealing a ton of our intellectual property, they they don't care so much about the second part. And I will say, so I was at the Reagan National Defense Forum this weekend, and China, cyber and technology transfer were some big, hot topics. So it's, it's right up it, there. It's
0: nice to be uh, on In top the, of that. On top uh, of yes, it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. OK, so um, uh, look forward to a fight because the uh, uh, the universities will say, oh, um, this is our self-interest. This is our money. This Mm -hmm. is academic freedom. uh, uh, And on the other side, just patriotism and the U.S. economy and national defense. So obviously we win.
2: Yeah. But something worth noting is that the stats on enrollment, Chinese enrollment are up Times six since 1999. So this is a large number of students putting in $60,000 a year. Yes. So it's going to be a fight. It
0: is. Uh, so what the administration should be doing, it should, should be coordinating with the Aussies and the Brits and maybe the, uh, maybe the Germans uh, to say, let's all – apply a certain mm-hmm. amount of scrutiny to the people that we're taking in as students.
2: Yes, definitely, especially when they have access to sensitive information. So. Yep. Okay.
0: So let's do, let's try Russia for a change, uh, 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 David. Uh, uh, I think it's now official. Everybody hates Facebook. Most of them hate them hate Facebook because uh, Facebook let the Russians do things uh, in twenty sixteen. But now it turns out the Russians hate Facebook too because of what they're trying to do to uh, to make up for the mistake. Uh, uh, this is a lawsuit by the Federal Agency of News, uh, uh, home of the trolling accountant that we talked about a couple of uh, episodes ago. Uh, Uh, which has now filed a trolling lawsuit, what looks to me like a trolling lawsuit against Facebook. Is there any hope that this lawsuit is going to go anywhere?
3: Um, (laughs) Well, I don't know. It's going to generate some laughs if it does go anywhere. A jury trial has been demanded, and I'm sure it'll be fun to play this out in front of the jury. Technically, this is a public accommodations and breach of contract case because Fan claims that the U.S. government has more or less bullied Facebook into discriminating against Russians, including fan itself. Um, I mean, you know, as to whether there's anybody left who favors, um, who favors, you know, uh, sort of, uh, speech controls, look, uh, subject to the same caveats as I made earlier, everybody thinks, I believe that, you know, child pornography and so forth, uh, outside of the first amendment ought to come off these platforms and the government has passed laws requiring companies to report it in. Uh, Then there's a second group of speech uh, involving non First Amendment. But a lot of these platforms, you know, for example, forbid adult nudity, even though it wouldn't fit the First Amendment exceptions there. So this is a kind of a field where it may be easier to talk about sex than violence, I guess. Um, And I don't think even you, Stuart, sort of doubt that these platforms have an ability, pursuant to their terms of service, to knock off that kind of content and keep it out. The hard thing, I think, is the third bucket of speech, which is stuff that isn't maybe in that second group, but it's still icky and and people don't like it. At least some people don't like it. And we're going to inevitably disagree on what the lines are and where they should be drawn. And then we're also going to disagree about any particular application of those lines. Nominally, that's what's going on. In this case, they're basically claiming we're innocent. We didn't do anything wrong. We're not part of uh, the Internet Research Agency or any Russian governmental entity. We're just uh, innocent Russian users who got swept up in this uh, anti Russian madness here. Under U.S.
0: law, do you get to sue over that? I, I mean, everybody, when I complain about uh, um, discrimination against conservative speech, everybody rushes to assure me that the First Amendment doesn't apply to uh, uh, private platforms like Twitter and Facebook.
3: Yeah. And they're they're bringing a public accommodations and breach of contract case. I mean, they say they complied with the terms of service. They didn't do anything wrong. The fact that they're ethnic Russians who target, you know, whose audience is Russian users or or people of Russian descent is not a basis. uh, And they've complied with the contract. Facebook ought to comply with the contract and they can't be kicked off. You know, so we'll just see about what discovery is like in this case, among other things, if it actually moves forward and, and see what the facts are.
0: So, yes, I uh, but, you know, if they really want to get to the uh, the social justice warriors of uh, uh, Silicon Valley, they should say, why, this is this is discrimination on the basis of our national origin. This is racism straight up uh, against
3: Russians. They are more or less saying that, um, you know, through their public accommodations <laughs> claim and um and so, you know, this will be this will be a fun one to watch. I this think it will be, this through. will
0: be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, the Russians who just they're such. Good trolls. They really are good. (laughs) Uh, They've they've opened a civil case against Google for not censoring news in accordance with Russian law. And they're planning to amend their law so that, you know, in um, modest uh, uh, imitation of the European Union, to say, and if you don't do what we say, we're going to uh, charge you 1% of your global revenue, uh, which is a good deal because the Europeans are charging 4%. Maury?
1: It's, it's the flip side of um, you know what David was talking about. It's in his bucket of stuff that we think is illegal. Um, this is an increasing thing we're seeing around the world as governments will have lists of illegal content which have to be taken down. And Google failed to sign up for the list. And under existing law, they can be fined something like $10,000 for that. So the Russians are trying to adopt a, a new law, as you said, but it's only 1% of Russian turnover. So it's really oh, fairly gentle. It's a bargain. The, it's a bargain. Yeah, 4% of global turnover. Putin, you piker.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, but uh, they, they are also planning privacy legislation. They're going to protect the, the private information of all those GRU officers who were stupid enough to take uh, Uber straight from GRU headquarters to the airport. Uh, 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 Maury, uh, is this just a standard privacy law turned into uh, uh, data protection for, for Putin's uh, cronies?
1: Um, you know, I think the Russians, like everybody else, think that they're legislating in a principled way. But, um, you know, we talk a lot about Europeans uh, passing legislation that's anti-U.S. tech firms. Sure, Putin does a lot to protect his cronies. So yeah. I'd say it's a mix.
0: Well, so if the Europeans were passing GDPR in the hopes of protecting their ad tech industry, uh, it sure looks as though they, uh, as I've said in other contexts, they're aiming at America and, and hit themselves square in the foot uh, because European ad tech firms, uh, according to the press, are taking a Big market share hit, uh, um, and Michael, since you know a lot about ad tech, uh, I'm going to ask you. Uh, this is what the press is reporting: that uh, there's been an enormous drop in European market share uh, uh, as a result of GDPR compliance costs. Does that look? Does that sound right to you?
4: Yeah, it does. And uh, you know, I can think of two reasons, only one of which I'm cynical about. Um, first, you just have classic uh, regulatory capture phenomena. You, Uh, really complex piece of legislation, creates a complex landscape. So who's going to win in that environment? It's going to be the people with hiring power, right? So it's literally going to favor the powerful. Um, The the less cynical explanation is that uh, the really big platforms are and have been more heavily scrutinized, which means that they're they're just ahead of the game. They, they've been thinking about privacy and and navigating through some super sticky situations for literally years now. And uh, the effect of GDPR is to force a bunch of smaller players to catch up who h- hadn't had to grapple with this. Before. I, I'm I'm going to suggest a third possibility, yeah. uh, which is uh,
0: if you're buying uh, or using a uh, ad tech. Um, and you're suddenly worried that it could pres- create liability for mm-hmm. you. You're much more likely to want to buy from somebody you've heard of before That's than true.
4: somebody you don't know. Yeah. About. So there's a flight to safety effect. Yeah.
1: yeah. We're certainly seeing this with our, you know, our clients, moderate-sized companies that need advice from us on GDPR. While the big guys have had, you know, have in-house privacy lawyers who've been looking at it for, for years. And percentage-wise, in terms of their turnover, it's much lower. I do think, however, that if these big fines bite, you know, the 4% of global turnover, some of the big guys could face serious pain under GDPR like they have with some of the uh, competition fines against Google, for example.
0: Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, somebody wants to describe the FCC as in the, uh, uh, the business of uh, uh, nudging Monopolists to do the right thing. I, that's my guess. Even even you know, four uh, percent of global turnover it would hurt, but it's not going to change your market position. Is my guess. Uh, it, this is actually a really interesting thing that will change uh, ransomware's uh, market position. The U.S. has indicted some, some Iranians for ransomware, the usual yada yada. Because uh, I don't think they caught anybody, but uh, yeah. what they did do is they persuaded Treasury to. Um, freeze the Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So that what, what does that mean? Everybody who takes Bitcoin in the future is on notice that if it comes from this address, that's, that's uh, it's my tainted. Under-
2: that's my understanding. And it, it's kind of an interesting way and in whether or not it works is a question, but it puts a lot of people on notice that if you are engaging with known violators of law, I mean, these are nasty guys who targeted hospitals with right. ransomware attacks. These are well, bad those are the, people. Those are the people who
0: can't afford to be down yes. for five hours.
2: Yes, right. and then they pay they pay the ransom. Um, if you engage in transactions with folks known to be doing stuff like this, you're on notice from the U.S. Treasury. And that's that's fantastic. Um, whether or not it works in this underground world where people have bought into this idea that we don't need to know who people are in order to engage in financial transactions, there's a the question of whether or not it um, will be easy. But the fact that we're at the point saying we need to do this. I think is a really good move.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a shout out to uh, Seagal yes. who Yes, done some Excellent. really interesting stuff uh, uh, with Treasury sanctions. Treasury
2: uh, in general, good job, Treasury. Yeah, well, and, and, and actually,
0: I think NSD has a plays a role in this because mm-hmm. they also got uh, Commerce to do some creative things with mm-hmm. uh, with sanctions on uh, uh, companies saying don't do business with this company because mm-hmm. they're a, tied to espionage. Uh, um, uh, David. Uh, you were at nsd do you credit this uh, more to the regulatory agencies or more to nsd prodding them to do new things
3: oh i'm going to give you the politically correct answer and say i'm sure it was a joint effort, <laughs> and all the best elements of federal power were brought to bear in a coordinated fashion
0: so so can I can I then attribute this uh, uh, for the first time to you actually saying something nice about the coordinated effects of the Trump administration?
3: <laughs> OK, put me down for good, good, uncoordinated, regardless of who's in the White House. All right. Great.
0: OK. yeah. Uh, uh, so, David, I've got you. I I have to ask you about this story uh, about the guy who was heading down 101, drunk huh. and passed out asleep in his Tesla on autopilot, uh, and uh, the cops drive alongside, and there he is snoozing away, uh, and they have to figure out how to stop him. Uh, If I understand it, they had one guy behind zigzagging across the highway to slow down 101, which is really hard to do, Uh, and then one guy pulled in front of him and said, well, the Tesla won't hit me. He thought, uh, if I slow down, it will slow down behind me, uh, and then we can stop this uh, this car. Um, uh, my question for you, David, uh, is: Is there any interesting Fourth Amendment issue in uh, that entire
3: scenario? I'd like to say that I think probably not. It, it feels to me like an interesting technological question and interesting methodological question about how they achieved a traffic stop, but it does sound like a. A Fourth Amendment seizure stop, um, effectuated through the magnificent technology brought to us by Elon Musk. And I will say, I would file this under the "Don't Try It at Home" department because you know the the technology of this autopilot is not yet advanced to the point where you can get drunk, pass out, just program your home address, and hope for the best. Um, so you know, well, you
0: can. This, oh, yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, sort of the the Darwin Award would be the <laughs>
3: It might be a little bit of an IQ test, but I mean, there's, you know, the police have in the past, for example, thrown tacks or spikes on the road to stop cars that won't stop. This feels like a, a, a more, you know, kinder, gentler way of doing it. And I think it was rather creative policing and nobody got hurt and And that's all good. Um, And I believe he was seized as of the moment they started to block in his car. They're just, you know, they're lucky that, as you said earlier, that that the car didn't – Tesla didn't change lanes and try to accelerate. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Don't you think that's kind of a failing in the software? If if I'm driving down 101 and all the lanes are open and the guy in front of me slows down – I want my car to change lanes. Well I
4: yeah. I I have that car. Yes. It asks for confirmation from you before changing into oh. a better lane. So here's my other okay. question. Really Don't you have to it. hold on to it to keep the autopilot? What was he? Handcuffed to the wheel? What right.
2: <laughs> he was really he didn't wake up during the yeah. seven minutes. That's incredible. <laughs>
4: yeah, He must have been leaning on the wheel.
0: Oh, that's it. Oh. Over. I, Snoozing on the wheel, okay. All right. Uh, And last question, uh, just a a question for Megan. Um, What kind of internal debate do you think there is going on and maybe external debate? at Twitter and Facebook about how to handle the yellow vest protests in uh, France, where there's violence, there's yeah. legitimate protest. Uh, uh, there must be enormous pressure from the Macron administration to treat these guys as quasi terrorists and mm-hmm. threats that, that they shouldn't be allowed to organize. Uh, how do you think that's playing out? Uh, um, is this Arab Spring or is this 2016 and the American election?
2: My guess is they're treating it more like an uh, American or European protest event, where they're not going to try to shut it down just because there is a criminal element. Although it's going to get harder and harder as they continue doing things like lighting things on fire, attacking the Arc de Triomphe, like I, attacking an Apple store, which is kind oh of my absurd. god, no <laughs> yeah, sacrilegious. <laughs> <laughs> um, although it will be interesting to see what pressure comes to bear
0: all right well thank you all uh, uh, we're gonna turn now to our interview with Michael Tiffany uh, who uh, he is the co-founder and president of white Ops which is uh, uh, one of the premier firms that does security work on ads basically aimed at stopping ad fraud uh, and uh, uh, Michael welcome thank you uh, so I guess I think we, we should start. By say, uh, explaining how ad tech works so that we can figure out how ad tech fraud works. Because, you know, in the ordinary ad world, Procter & Gamble mm-hmm. just says, we'd like to run an ad in the Wall Street Journal. So we'll just go to the Wall Street Journal or maybe our ad uh, buyers will uh, ad, uh, uh advertising firm will go to them and say, we'd like to buy us uh, an ad. That is nothing like what happens online, uh, where it's all uh, multiple
4: intermediaries can you explain the structure of the industry? Yeah, with pleasure. So, um, so in that earlier model, uh, depending on what you wanted to advertise, you found what shows or what magazines were popular with a particular demographic, mm-hmm. and, and then you'd place your ads in those publications, hoping that the right people viewed it. Well, online, uh, ad sales still work on the basis of circulation. If more people see your ad, then you pay more money. But instead of trying to reach people through particular publications as a proxy for the audience that you want to reach, now there are extraordinarily sophisticated targeting mechanisms such that when you load a web page, an auction happens in the background while the browser is pulling down all the content that is a multi-party auction deciding what ads to show you. And the ads that you end up seeing are a function, of course, of what website you're at, but also a function of your cookies and device IDs and a bunch of guesswork about what sort of person you are. So they
0: know instead of guessing, well, the Wall Street Journal usually has rich people, uh, you actually know this is a rich person or at least they behave like a rich person online. Uh, And instead of the Wall Street Journal selling it, uh, you get to sell your ad to somebody who has figured out what the uh, uh, characteristics of this, uh, some intermediary who says, uh, now I know who Stuart Baker is, uh, I think he's a lawyer, and I think he's got money, so I'm going to give him this ad.
4: That's right. And so the exact market opportunity to, that led to these intermediaries is this, P&G, I can give you the exact same guy who later in the day is going to be reading the Wall Street Journal- but you can reach him on this blog at a lower price. And you know what? That might even be a better time to reach him because you want to catch his attention not when he's reading the news but instead when he's reading about his hobbies. Right. OK. So
0: – and and the the way this works, there are still publishers. They mm-hmm. still have websites and Wall Street Journal or uh, skatingonstilts.com mm-hmm. uh, and uh, – so there's a hole there mm-hmm. for an ad that's right uh and that's called and and the person who actually decides what goes in that hole is a supply side uh, uh, provider that the, he's this is a platform that says we have a hole uh, and we we have a supply of holes uh and as people come to the site we will fill that hole with a ad that uh, um gets the highest bid in the uh, in the auction.
4: That's exactly right. So um, so that has led to, of course, um, amazing democratization because now you can target exactly what you feel like is the right audience across vast swaths of websites, which is wonderful. And um, it's it's presumably better for publishers because it means that the creators of content can open up those advertising holes to a much wider array of advertisers than their sales forces could possibly have reached uh, people that, themselves. That would themselves. Ne- you would never uh, run into – it would never find
0: advertisers who may pay a lot of money for a particular kind of reader, uh, but they'll never come to the Wall Street Journal because you're charging um, a, a lot of money to reach a very wide audience instead of uh, an even greater amount of money to reach a particular person.
4: Yeah, so, so the – the the economic incentives for participating in these global auctions schemes is really quite large for both advertisers and for sellers. So as a result, in a very short period of time, uh, the majority now of ad spending is spent in online in these auctions. And you only pay if somebody clicks on your ad. Well, you you, you or if somebody goes to see your if ad. You, someone if someone views your ad. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
0: Okay, and so. Um, Here's a highly instrumented environment in Mm -hmm. which lots of uh, uh, stuff happens very quickly. You can validate uh, a lot of information about the people who are getting on uh, your site, and yet it's – Full of fraud that depends on you not knowing some of those things, uh, and that seems to be what this case that we're talking about today, uh, the Eve case, uh, that's right. uh, was getting at—that the people, the mainly Russians who uh, were engaged in that, mm-hmm. had
4: figured out a way to game the system. What were they doing to game the system? Well, fundamentally, ads. Um, are charged, again, based on essentially circulation. If more people view ads, then more money changes hands. So that means that if you can manufacture an audience that appears to be looking at a lot of ads, then you can make a lot of money. In fact, you can make more money doing ad fraud than you can from all the ransomware in the world, all of the spam campaigns in the world, really all of the, the... banking account takeover attacks in wow. the world. Because if you if you compromise real people's computers and, and you make them view more ads, you can make money this month and next month and the month thereafter. Forever, because they really are real people. That's right. That's right. Now, this is an environment that, as we said, is very sophisticated, um, where – Uh, everyone is trying to serve the right ad to the right person at the right time. Obviously, a a robot is never the right person. Um, So so that leads to the question, okay, so how can an industry that is hiring maybe the best data scientists in the world, right? There are a few people working on self-driving cars. The rest are working on making advertising better. Mm -hmm. Um, How can um, an industry filled with those kinds of ultra smart people be duped by fraud? And the answer is that since this scheme makes so much money, it's attracted literally the best cyber criminals, right? I mean, oh, okay. if you're the best yep. black hats in the world, you do the most profitable thing, right? Yes, so I, I I looked at this. They, they
0: they busted these guys. They say they made $7 million with this scheme with massive
4: amounts of bots. Uh, it didn't seem like a lot of money. I, I feel like a better way to put this is that the prosecution is ready to prove to a jury that at least $7 million ah, okay. was made, right? Like, just because Al Capone went down for tax evasion doesn't mean he wasn't a bootlegger and murderer, right? Um, In in this case, uh, the the crime scaled really rather well. And the malware perpetrating the crime is actually really well studied. Um, Kavter, for instance, which was used uh, by the EVE operators. This is one of the malwares. That's right. It's been around for years. Um, not only that, but uh, proofpoint, one of the um, one of the partners in what we called Operation Eversion to take this operation down, had studied some of the threat actors behind Eve. They mm-hmm. they called them G, and and put together a timeline stretching back something like six years. So what's really new here is consequences. See, for the most part. Antivirus companies, really all the good guys, um, as a global community, we're cleaning up malware infections or trying to take down botnets. But most of the time, it's just superficial. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you, don't, you can't make consequences happen for the operators behind the scheme because it's really hard to de-anonymize them. Right. Well, if you catch them in the act, you can answer the question: Who benefits? And then law enforcement can follow the money, which they're extraordinarily good at. And that combination is, is pretty new in this world. And that's why even uh, people in countries you don't ordinarily think about facing consequences for cybercrime are caught this time. So this, uh, I, I was reading the indictment and they clearly
0: had uh, wiretap. Orders on some of these guys because they knew what they were searching. So they they, they said this guy uh, right. uh, was asked uh, to solve a problem, and he immediately went out and uh, did some Google searches uh, and then brought back a, a solution. That, mm-hmm. uh, so there must have been intense uh, coordination with law enforcement on this.
4: That's right. I, I'm I'm told that this is uh, the broadest, largest takedown to date. Uh, the the working group was extremely large, and uh, the nature of the way that both cybercriminal rings were were dismantled there was there was Eve and also a, another scheme called Methbot um, was was really quite pervasive. So it wasn't just about taking down parts of the infrastructure, but actually really trying to unwind the the networks. I I don't know of any example. Um, that was this extensive. So
0: one of the things that was interesting is that they had – the the fraudsters had spread their infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Some of the stuff – some of the fake views were coming from compromised computers Mm -hmm. uh, that had been infected with uh, uh, a variety of uh, viral uh, um, uh, bot uh, uh, software Uh, and – They'd been pretty careful there. they They actually wouldn't run it if there was if somebody else had already compromised the machine as if I remember, right? or if That's they were right. running antivirus. So they were
4: trying to stay under the radar to uh, to the extent that the malware had evolved to this level of sophistication. If they downloaded a website that had cryptojacking code, it would actually get intercepted and disabled because the cryptojacking code, can increase the CPU on right. an infected your, computer, your which might slow? tip off the victim. Right. Exactly. So they would they would disable all of that, so the ad fraud could keep running stealthily in the background. So, so
0: really, they were doing the user a, a big favor,
4: <laughs> right? Because it cost the
0: user nothing to go to these machine uh, these uh, sites and pretend to to, to read them. Well, uh, this is from the user's point of view. The, the people who have the bad security, this mm-hmm. is uh, uh, there's really not much risk in having these guys on the, on your system?
4: Is well, our theory and the reason why we're spending so much time on ad fraud is that there are only so many cyber crimes that really scale. Right, Ad fraud is one of them. And the money that's made from ad fraud forms the buy side to malware innovation, right? right. This is the money that is spent on developing Cofter, on developing new rootkits, uh, yeah, new yeah. bootkits, Um, This money isn't going to just rainbows and puppies. And so if we can cut off the scalability of this crime, even though it it, it might feel benign, it'll actually have a far-reaching effect on – the pseudonymous criminal underground that pays for innovation. Right, trying to t- take away the incentive to develop
0: really sophisticated new attacks. That's right. Uh, um, and part of that is to uh, reduce the uh, the payoff, and the other part is to increase the penalties.
4: That's exactly mm. right. Like What winning means is that we, we push down the payoff so far— That a rational actor – because we're talking about super rational, honestly brilliant people – look at the potential payout versus the cost and risk and and they think, you know, I'm going to pick a different game. So the other thing they did
0: that I thought was interesting, what they did multiple other things, but uh, they um, got a uh, data center Mm -hmm. and registered hundreds of thousands of IP addresses uh, and then used all the virtual machines in the data center – To fake being uh, users online uh, or to fake being sites that had inventory, uh, that is to say, uh, ad holes to fill. That's right. Uh, And and then other – Fake uh, uh, machines would come in and read the, the the inventory while it was on the fake machine uh, uh, from the fake publisher. Uh, and so the only people who were real in the whole transaction were the guys who were paying for the impressions.
4: That's right. The the methbot operators were running the whole scheme out of uh, just a few data centers. So and why did they pick a U.S. data center? That strikes me as dangerous. Right? Well – well, c- certainly there's um, you know some hubris involved here, but <laughs> but yes. they covered their tracks in an extraordinary way that we had never seen before, where they divided up all of the IP addresses that they had under their control over six hundred and fifty thousand addresses. That's an asset that by itself is worth millions of dollars. They broke it up into small blocks and forged entries into one of the root systems of the internet, the the BGP, the the RIRs. These are the regional internet registries that keep track of who owns what IP addresses. Mm -hmm. Well, what they did is they made these small blocks look as if they were owned by... ISPs across oh, so these, Middle America, and these were
0: blocks that nobody cared about because they hadn't been used yet. They, That's they, exactly you know, like right. Like HP used to have half, uh, you know, one sixteenth of all the internet addresses <laughs> in the planet, uh, and so they're obviously not using them all. Uh, and so they could they could pretend to be those guys for
4: years without anybody noticing. That's exactly right. So that was not a fast attack. They they had to build that inventory up over time. And it was uh, – first of all, it was breathtaking, but it was also a source of fragility because since they weren't using infected real people, since it was all synthetic, what we were able to do is simply publish the list of every address that they used, which blew them off the internet the uh, same day. Yeah. Plus, it's a, it's a trademark violation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, you know, Microsoft has gotten a lot of traction out of um, saying – if you if your malware mm-hmm. says Microsoft or uh, right. has Microsoft in it as trademark violation and we can seize it mm-hmm. uh, and uh, take away your ability uh, to to use it, so it seems to me given the many ways in which they were uh, supporting this, mm-hmm. that taking it down must have required a lot of coordination uh, um, and indeed coordination with arrests. So this That's is right. – uh, uh, were you sitting there waiting to take it down for mm-hmm. a week or two while they kind of made sure that everybody that they wanted to arrest was in a jurisdiction where they could arrest them?
4: Right. Well, um, from the White ups perspective, we're, we're actually um, – you stopping bots doing ad fraud all the time. Yeah, uh, every day. Um, obviously, the DOJ is not putting out press releases every day, and th- their timeline was was totally outside of our control. Um, but there was there was a particular day when it was time to dismantle all the infrastructure, and I believe that the trigger event was one of the arrests. So um, as as law enforcement was able to dig in. And, and ultimately get attribution down to you know, named individuals, uh, then I think they were uh, you know, looking for certain movements and saw an opportunity to move. And at that time... Uh, multiple parts of Operation Eversion, including Symantec and Proofpoint and Shadow Server and multiple ISPs, all moved into action to take control of the the C2, the mm-hmm. command of control. Which I assume was all over the world, right? That's uh, right. Which
0: meant that they needed cooperation either from... Big isps uh, uh, but more likely also government uh, agencies
4: that's right because the the government is technically um seizing those assets and then once they're seized, then the name servers can be redirected. so as a legal matter, did the Germans recognize u s seizure of this
0: or do they seize this stuff on their own? Do you know Ooh, no that's that's going over my head, okay. Uh, because uh, you know, it's easy for the U.S. government to say we're seizing this asset, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe the Germans just go along because they they know it's all in, 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 for the good of the uh, the internet. Uh, um, but I would have thought if the U.S. government tried to seize an asset that was located in Germany, the German mm-hmm. government would usually uh, say, "Excuse me, that's our job." Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: The, the well, th- there was uh, an extraordinary amount of international cooperation, mm-hmm. um, also evident in the arrests. Uh, the people indicted were from Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, but the the arrests were in Bulgaria, malaysia and and Estonia, right and then assets of course in, in North America and europe so let me, let me ask you
0: the broad question uh, uh, to sort of put a bow on this. Uh, what does this tell us about the future of ad fraud uh, ad tech fraud? Uh, Is this a sign that we're starting to get a handle on it or is this us lifting a rock and saying, oh, my God, look at that (laughs) uh, and spraying it with raid but not necessarily solving the problem?
4: (laughs) Well, when when White Ups first started looking into this problem, we really did feel as though the victims had no idea that they were being victimized. So this was a a crime that succeeds by going unnoticed Mm -hmm. and, and was hugely unnoticed. That's no longer the case. Um, now advertisers are aware of, of the risks of ad fraud, but, um, the world was still light on consequences. So I I believe this is a real turning point. Um, as I said, what winning looks like is when the profits are no longer attractive relative to the cost and the risk. And this is the first time we're seeing really major costs and risks at, at this level. And I don't think that, this uh, is an end so much as a beginning. An end certainly to even Methbot, but I think we're going to see more of this.
0: So I, my my guess on this is that the people who were most technically sophisticated about how the whole market worked weren't really hurt by ad fraud, right? If 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 you're selling. Uh, uh, clicks or mm-hmm. you're running auctions and you're collecting fees, uh, the fact that they're fraudulent transactions is bad for your
4: reputation, but they, uh, each you, you still get paid for the, each of those transactions. There's actually a subtle economic principle here that it's hard to see, but is extremely powerful. Um, Google was our principal partner on um, Fighting Eve. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why this is uh, so very much in the vested interest of Google is that all this fraud has the effect of making it look as though there are more people watching ads on the internet than there really are right. which creates artificial oversupply so if you've gone to all the trouble to get real human engagement it actually sucks to be competing against fake because fake is cheaper right so if we can eliminate all the fraud then literally billions of dollars go to the clean honest players left standing Right. And so that's how we've been able to build such a coalition for the complete elimination because everyone who wants to live in that fraud-free future because they believe they'd make even more money in that future
0: are allies with us in this fight. So it reminds me of the uh, the old uh, saying by you know, people like Procter & Gamble. I said, uh, half of uh, my advertising budget is wasted. I just don't know which half. Uh, 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 with luck, you'll be able to say, yeah, half of it is fraud, but I know which half and I can I eliminate it. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's how we'll win. All right. All uh, right. Um, so a uh, uh, quick question about White Ops. you mm-hmm. going to have any uh, more reports or events or speeches uh, or uh, are there resources for people who want to know more about this that you'd recommend?
4: Yeah, we, uh, we set up a landing page uh, sharing an extraordinary amount of technical detail. Um, as well as as partner materials at whiteops.com slash Eve. By the way, Eve is stylized as 3VE. There were three parts to it. So if, if you visit there, the yeah, I have a to say, I, I, a long, in my
0: head, I was saying 3 for oh. the longest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yes, it is Eve, but uh, the first E is a 3. Uh, uh, Leet speak. Uh, unfortunately
4: <laughs> we okay. hackers what can i say
0: yes exactly all right michael tiffany this was t- uh, terrific uh thank you so much for coming in uh, and mine. it's a great introduction to uh really the darkest uh, corner of uh, uh cyber uh crime uh but uh one that if we could clean it up uh, would give those guys uh, in russia an opportunity to find a uh a better use for all those brains that's right Thank you very much. Uh, Okay. Uh, uh, That's uh, Michael Tiffany, uh, Maury Shank, uh, Dr. Megan Reese, uh, and David Chris. Thanks to all of them for joining us. Uh, This has been episode 242 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Be sure to uh, suggest a guest interviewee and we'll give you a highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, uh, Since I suggested uh, Michael (laughs) Tiffany, I'm going to give him (laughs) the highly coveted (laughs) (laughs) Cyberlaw Podcast mug uh, uh, and uh, send those suggestions to, the sire law podcast at steptoe.com. Uh, you can watch, uh, uh, our thinking about what's going to be on the next show, uh, uh, by following at Stuart Baker on Twitter for as long as, uh, uh, Twitter lets me stay up, which, you know, <laughs> God knows uh, how long that will be. Uh, please do leave ratings for the show, uh, uh, and engage with the other reviewers. Uh, um, uh, we're always looking for, uh, uh entertainingly abusive reviews. Uh, uh I'm hoping that Jim Langevin, who is likely to be uh, in charge of um, of the House Armed Services Committee subcommittee on emerging threats, uh, which will have a lot of uh, uh, high-tech – Defense Department policy, uh, uh, we're, ho- we're hoping that uh, he will be on as the uh, chair of that subcommittee. And uh, if we're lucky and the uh, um, and Congress grinds to a halt on Thursday. I'll go and interview him. Uh, uh, and, you know, you usually can't lose money in Congress in this town uh, <laughs> betting that Congress will grind to a halt. Uh, also, Denise Howell, I, who had me on uh, uh, This Week in Law, uh, which is the granddaddy of uh, legal uh, uh, podcasts. I I think there must be on – Episode four or five hundred. Uh, now she's going to join us, um, so we'll start talking about some of the topics that she usually covers and what uh, is generally called Twill. Uh, and um, after that, uh, the blockchain is going to take over uh, uh, the podcast again on December seventeenth. So if you're sick of listening to me, you only have one more uh, episode before the blockchain takes over, and then we're going to go take uh, two weeks off for our usual Christmas break. Uh, there's A foot of snow on the Middlebury snowball. I will be there if you're looking for me. I will be the guy wearing a jacket that uh, I I was once stopped by uh, TSA uh, by a woman who said, uh, excuse me, sir did you buy this jacket in 1992? And I had to admit that I did. So uh, you'll recognize me right away. Uh, finally, show credits. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beavers, our intern uh, and increasingly indispensable intern. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security,
3: privacy, and government.